Those of us living today generally think of ourselves as modern, that we live in modern times, and that we are very different from the people of the past. And yes, we might dress differently and have more impressive technology, but there is an important thing that we share with all humans who have come before. We ask ourselves big, hard questions about life. Questions like, how should we live? And why the world is so full of suffering. Each era comes up with answers to these questions. And although sometimes the answers last a long time, they are never permanent. As times change, people demand new answers. In his 1966 book, The Legitimacy of the Modern Age, German philosopher Hans Blumenberg explores the evolution of humanity's answers to our perennial questions. His ideas are extraordinarily uh, complicated and in many cases uh, counterintuitive and based on uh, an ability really to give um, the history of ideas a kind of dramatic uh, intensity that is really quite remarkable. It's a book that is so rich that every time you go back to it, you discover something new and realize how little you understood the first time around. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Martin Jay to discuss the legitimacy of the modern age. What should we know about Hans Blumenberg's life uh, and context that can help us understand the, the time that it emerges and the conversations it was part of? He was born in 1920 and uh, grew up uh, in uh, Nazi Germany. Uh, his mother had come uh, from a Jewish background, although she converted uh, during his adolescence. Despite his Jewish heritage, Blumenberg was able to get an education, studying philosophy at both Paderborn University and Goethe University in Germany. But his studies were soon interrupted. At the very end, uh, 1944-45, uh, he was uh, prevented from studying, was actually put in a work camp for a while, uh, but was protected and uh, never seriously damaged by uh, the Holocaust. After World War II, Blumenberg resumed his studies in German and classical philology at the University of Hamburg. He also had an opportunity to spend time in a Catholic seminary and learned a great deal of theology. Uh, and it took a while for him to make his mark. He was not one of the people who uh, was, uh, you know, part of the big discussion of uh, how to deal with uh, the Nazi past, how to deal with the German intellectual contribution to it. He was very much outside the political events of the 1960s. Ultimately, his teaching took him to Munster, which is a fairly provincial university where he spent the last years of his life. He dies in 1996. Blumenberg's main interest was in the history of ideas, which he explored through changes in language, metaphor, and theology. And so as a student of language, uh, someone interested in rhetoric, someone interested in metaphor, he first, I think, entered the scene. He was part of a group also of uh, very interesting scholars down in Constance around the, uh, what it became, I guess, was a journal or at least a, a kind of program called Poetics and Hermeneutics. Uh, and then in the mid-60s, he got into a polemic uh, with Karl Lovett, uh, although several other figures like Carl Schmitt were involved, concerning the meaning uh, of secularization. Uh, and it's alleged 
uh, debt to uh, uh, Christian or at least medieval uh, theology. Years earlier, in 1949, the German philosopher Karl Lovett published his book, Meaning in History, which examined the themes of modernity, progress, and secularization. Much of the discussion focused on the idea of legitimacy. Legitimacy means that it is, you know, something that is based on something that gives it a kind of um, recognition in the eyes of people who uh, accept it. So a legitimate child is one who has the authority of inheritance. Uh, A legitimate law is one that uh, is followed by the people who see its promulgation as based on a a kind of acceptance of the authority of those who make uh, the laws. Uh, And so legitimacy is a very important uh, concept. Lovett believed that the secular, non-religious modern age was not a legitimate age. It wasn't, in fact, even a new age because it wasn't really secular. He argued the modern age was just a corroded continuation of medieval Christendom. Secularization simply takes the content, the substance uh, of uh, medieval Christian thought and robs it of transcendence, uh, robs it of its divine, uh, we might say, uh, authority, and uh, simply adopts it without recognizing or acknowledging where it came from. It's like doing a cover of a musical uh, performance without recognizing who was the original performer, who was the original composer. For Lovett, the modern age is not legitimate because it is a copy of Christendom, but without the substance of Christianity. Hans Blumenberg vehemently disagreed with Lovett and made his counterargument in his book, The Legitimacy of the Modern Age. Now, Blumenberg's argument is that this is a misunderstanding of the relationship between uh, modernity uh, and what preceded it. Uh, And the argument is that instead of a secularization, there is a reoccupation of the answers given to questions that are in a way perennial questions. Basically, these are questions that trouble uh, humankind from a very early period and which still trouble us. Certain um, spaces are created by questions and uh, you need an answer. And when the answer ceases to be successful, you have to reoccupy the answer position with a new answer, which functions for a while to satisfy uh, our need for answers. Blumenberg believed there are certain questions that humans will always ask themselves. Questions like, why is there evil? What does it mean to act morally? What is our role in the universe? Blumenberg believed that each era comes up with its own answers to these questions. The answer occupies the space that the question created. When an answer stops working, people find a new one to replace it or reoccupy its spot. Now, what happens is that, in a way, that new answer also begins to show its uh, internal contradictions or their new evidence or whatever it is that causes it no longer to function. So, for example, a myth at one point would function to explain why lightning and thunder you know, Zeus throws them down, whatever the myth. And people say, okay, that's, oh, look, Zeus is angry. But at a certain point, you know, people say, wait a minute, this, uh, you know, it's not working for me. Let's come up with something else. And so meteorology, you know, comes up with a better answer. So I think that's the, you know, a paradigm of that, we might say. Blumenberg applied this same idea of a paradigm shift to Christianity and secular modernity. And so Christendom provides certain answers 
And according to uh, Bloomberg, these answers ultimately uh, become uh, unsatisfactory. They, they crumble of their own weight. They create a kind of vacuum, a need for a new answer. And so modernity stumbles into new answers, which are still perhaps tentative. And this is the point that he makes. They're not uh, what we might call satisfactory, definitive, absolute answers, which will prevent these questions from ever being asked again. Uh, and this is absolutely crucial that these are open-ended. And modernity, in a way, is partly to be admired for its humility. It, it doesn't, according to Bloomberg, claim that it has all the answers to the questions that uh, plague us. Blumenberg traces the emergence and evolution of answers to these perennial questions. He begins with the Gnostic tradition, which comes out of Jewish and early Christian religious ideas. Gnosticism says, look, what we have is a world which is corrupt, a world in which evil is rampant, a world in which it's extremely hard to think that a benign God would be its origin. And therefore, what we need to do is to denigrate this world, to escape this world, to take seriously only the world of transcendence, perhaps the world of the afterlife, the world that God makes. This world is created by an evil demiurge. This world is created by some other godlike figure that somehow had, you know, humankind as its target. And as a result, this world is not to be salvaged. Uh, there's no salvation in this world. Salvation only comes from leaving it behind. The Gnostic answer to the problem of evil is that this world isn't good, but it's not God's fault. It's the evil demiurge's fault. Now, the Christian response to this is a kind of panic because God created this world, Christianity, and of course Judaism before it argues, and he affirmed it. And he is himself by definition good. He is himself by definition rational, wise, perfect. So, the real issue is, well, how do we then justify this lousy world? How do we then justify the evil that exists? So, there are lots of answers, but Christianity comes up basically with two answers. Christianity understands this cosmos uh, as not evil, not uh, filled with uh, corruption, but on some deep level as inherently rational. And that if we only you know, try hard enough through, let's say, scholastic means, we will understand the rationality of this world. Uh, and therefore, we don't reject the world, the way Gnosticism argues. We have a, a cosmic rather than a cosmic relation. We accept the cosmos. Now, the second premise that comes from Augustine, according to Bloomberg, is that the reason there is evil is because God gave man choice. Uh, God also created man, at least after the fall, with original sin. And so, the fact that we are free, the fact that we have choice, and the fact that we are sinners means that there is something in the world which is a kind of toxin, a poison. And we have to somehow, you know, if it's going to be a moral struggle, we have to uh, basically um, uh, deal with that. And it's ultimately the difficulty of accepting the Augustinian response that creates uh, in the threshold of modernity a new crisis. Augustine's answer to the problem of evil was our God-given moral freedom. The world is full of evil, yes, but it is God's plan that we can and should use our freedom to choose the good. Now, the great ingenuity of Bloomberg's argument is to say that ultimately this early Christian um, uh, way of dealing with the Gnostic challenge fails, that it breaks apart. 
It breaks apart when it comes to the idea of the cosmic rationality that's inherited from Greek paganism. When in the, basically the 13th and 14th century, though it begins in the 12th, another aspect of divinity is stressed, which is the aspect of absolute power and God's capacity to will anything. This new emphasis creates a tension between the idea that, on the one hand, God created the cosmos, the cosmos are rational, and God has to play by those rules. And on the other hand, the idea that God is all-powerful and doesn't have to act rationally within the rational cosmos. That old paradoxical question, can God make a rock so big even he can't lift it, captures this tension. What becomes a kind of balance between God is rational, God is beholden to the cosmos that he has created on the one hand, and God is absolutely capable of willing anything without rational, uh, you know, uh, uh, somehow sanction on the other. This ultimately is decided by uh, a stress on will. By stressing the will of humans, these medieval Christian theologians move the focus away from the rational cosmos and onto humans themselves. So, in a sense, the cosmos becomes once again a place of rather frightening contingency, uh, of a kind of God who is absent from the world, a God whose providence doesn't uh, decide uh, what uh, our fate will be. Basically, what this does is create an opening, uh, creates a sense that the world is not simply to be contemplated, to be appreciated uh, simply as inherently rational, but as contingent leaving man both abandoned and with the opportunity to uh, intervene in the world, not simply to be passive, not simply to be uh, worshipful uh, in a contemplative way of a world which is inherently rational, but to act in the world, to be assertive in the world, to be capable of, in some sense, uh, going into the world rather than simply admiring it uh, in a kind of passive way. The world is inherently a rather frightening place of meaninglessness because God's will is inexplicable to humans. Uh, God's will is so powerful and human uh, capacity to understand it is so uh, modest and limited that we live in a world bereft, we might say, of the comfort of a world in which uh, there are reasons for everything that we do. As a result, this world becomes very hard for us to make sense of. All that we can seem to understand on some level is how the world works, not why the world works. So this is a, a major, we might say, stepping back uh, to step forward. Uh, it's a kind of acceptance of human um, limits and finitude in the service, ultimately, of coping with the vastness of our ignorance by uh, now, and this is the second uh, part of Bloomberg's book, now unleashing human curiosity. Okay, a quick recap. Carl Lovett argued that the modern age is not legitimate because it is a copy of Christendom without the substance of Christianity. Blumenberg argued against this by saying that the modern age is legitimate because it proposes new answers to perennial human questions, such as, why does evil exist? Blumenberg continues his argument by exploring the role of human curiosity in the evolution of Christianity. In the uh, part of the book called The Trial of Curiosity, Blumenberg points out that humans are not by nature 
curious, that we are culturally allowed to be or prohibited from being curious. And in both the ancient world and the world of, of Christianity, curiosity was considered uh, a vice. It killed more than just cats. Why was this the case? Well, partly because the world had been, uh, in a way, made by God. It was to be understood as uh, somehow inherently rational. All we had to do was understand that. We didn't have to experiment. We didn't have to break it apart to see how it worked. We simply had to appreciate uh, what uh, God had made. And secondly, uh, we were given texts. We were given the authority of Scripture. So what we had to do is read what God's Word had told us to do. Uh, and curiosity would lead us astray. If you're curious, you're not reading those texts, you're going out and examining the world. The scriptures were believed to contain all of the important answers to all of the important questions. There was no point in asking your own big questions, much less trying to answer them. But that wall of cultural incuriosity eventually began to crack. One of the ways in which curiosity is unleashed, and the trial, we might say, is uh, one on the side of those who are curious, is there's an uncoupling of the idea of individual human salvation from the idea of species-wide, transsubjective uh, curiosity, uh, which produces the scientific revolution. And what does this mean? Well, according to Bloomberg, the idea of individual salvation individual happiness meant that the only thing you really had to do was to read the scripture and to follow God's word, follow his laws, and you would ultimately achieve salvation. And that's all that mattered. This is a very personal issue. And because it's personal, it ends in a way with your death. What the un, uh, uh, the, let's call it impersonal scientific revolution unleashed was the idea that there was a project, a human project, which existed after your individual death, after your alleged happiness or lack thereof, according to salvation, was decided. It was an endless project, a project that involved all of us in a kind of collective endeavor to make sense of the world as best we can, to know its causes, to know how it worked, even though we never could understand ultimate purposes. So it's a kind of limited but endless quest, but it's a transubjective and we might say species quest rather than individual quest. So curiosity becomes something that doesn't harm the individual whose happiness is based on salvation, but rather is something which abets the human domination, we might say, of nature, or at least the mastery of the world outside. Uh, and that's part of the modern legitimation, that we legitimate ourselves by this endless quest for a kind of transubjective knowledge, uh, which allows us better and better, so we hope, to uh, make sense uh, of and to live comfortably in a world which is inherently uh, hostile. Yeah, the, the, the curiosity to me was that if you think that God is willing everything, you could imagine that being a comfort if you thought he was sort of lovingly involved in your life and the life of your community and, and world. Um, but in fact, they saw it as inscrutable and distant um, and beyond the powers of reason to discern. So then you say, well, all right. <laughs> so we're not up to the task with our reason. Nevertheless, we want to investigate and we'll use our desire to learn to try to make sense of things, including the sense of the human project that we're a part of. Right. Right. 
I mean, it calls into question all the characteristics that were uh, attributed to God. So lovingness, uh, you know, or rationality, or, uh, you know, uh, the idea that God somehow had a benign plan. Uh, we don't know. God could be a deceiver. God could be not someone who inherently tells the truth, but could deceive. We just don't know. So it's a kind of ignorance. Now, there are people later, Descartes is one, for example, who will say, no, no, God couldn't be a deceiver. That, that's just not part of his nature. But if God can will anything, and if will is the crucial characteristic rather than anything else, then he can will to be, certainly from the human perspective, a deceiver. Uh, and this is a kind of absent God, a deus absconditus, who is a little scary. Uh, and of course, you know, there are various expedients. I mean, predestination, although, of course, what the Calvinists uh, understand is we don't know if we're predestined or not. I mean, are we members of the elect? Well, we just don't know. So, you know, it's this, it's this ignorance that we just don't know. And so God's will will, you know, uh, do things that we simply can't explain. So it's scary. And, uh, you know, we have to, and it's both, as I said, an opportunity because we're now on our own. We have to uh, basically deal with things as best we can. So if the, if the secularization process, at least as most Western publics think of it today, the story they tell themselves is we, we believed in superstition for a very long time, and then we started looking for evidence um, and without that evidence, we sort of grew up um, and rejected superstition and only believe in reason now. And that, that is, that's what marks the change from the medieval world to the modern world, uh, science and, and uh, elevation of reason. Um, and is that simple story more or less the story that you know, Schmidt and Loweth and others were also saying, although in more sophisticated ways? Schmidt will argue that every political idea in the modern period is a secularized version uh, of a certain notion of sovereignty, a certain notion of the absolute power of God. And uh, Levitt will say that uh, progress is the uh, stolen version of Christian notions of eschatology. And I think Bloomberg has very good answers to that without buying into uh, that uh, sort of just-so story that you described, you know, that somehow we weaned ourselves, we became a la Kant mature by getting rid of superstition, getting rid of uh, priests and, uh, you know, clerics, and we discovered that, uh, you know, science and empiricism and all of uh, what we construe as the skeptical modern uh, worldview uh, works better for us, and we can, we can buy it. Bloomberg doesn't accept that. I mean, the point about the reoccupation argument is that there isn't a radical break between the modern and the pre-modern. What we do uh, is basically come up with fragile, uh, but perhaps for a while, um, answers to these questions. Why is there evil? Uh, why is there something rather than nothing? Uh, you know, all these basic questions that still trouble us. According to Blumenberg, our modern era is legitimate because we're looking for answers to these perennial questions the same way that the pre-modern era did. He doesn't think we'll ever arrive at a final truth, since these questions will always be with us. But our fragile and temporary answers provide us with some provisional stability to carry on. It sounds like it's not just an affirmation that the modern age is, you know, has a right <laughs> to its own narrative. Um, 
what is he really hoping to convince its, his readers of if if it's more complex than the modern age is pretty good, you know, it's all right? Well, one thing we can't do is go back. So, you know, let's say a Heideggerian notion of the recovery of being, which has been forgotten, uh, or uh, Livet's idea that we can go back to a certain stoic uh, understanding of nature, a desire to somehow recover uh, the comfort, really, of a world that uh, we've become alienated from. So Bloomberg at least tells us that there's no going back and that we can't recover anything that was organically whole. And he does that partly by showing that from the get-go, all of these alleged uh, moments of great uh, tranquility and synthesis were themselves riven with conflicts. So this uh, will versus reason, you know, this is very, uh, you know, corrosive. I mean, the Middle Ages is a period of great turmoil, intellectually, theologically. It's not a period in which there is this happy consensus. Everybody believes in the same thing, uh, let alone heretics and Jews and, you know, uh, people of other uh, faiths who happen to be in Europe. And so, I mean, all this is a kind of clear nostalgia for something which didn't exist. And one of the fascinating things that he points out is that, Christianity from the get-go was trying to deal with a pagan past. It wasn't simply itself a clean rupture. It was very much from, uh, you know, Neoplatonic and other moments in early Christianity, trying to incorporate uh, ideas and attitudes from uh, a past which was pagan and therefore problematic. Uh, and how you combined Athens and Jerusalem was always a problem. So there is always a kind of, we might say, always already um, riven contestatory quality in the alleged age of wholeness. So our age, which supposedly is an age of meaningless alienation, whatever, is not that different. How does Blumenberg think about the meaning of history or, uh, you know, a directionality even? I mean, it sounds like he thinks there's always just a complex swirl of ideas that are trying to answer these you know, seemingly perennial questions? Well, it's a difficult question because he keeps his cards very close to his chest. So this is clearly not uh, a grandiose philosophy of history. It's not a meta-narrative in which we're going in one direction, uh, eschatological or secular version of eschatological improvement. It's not uh, also a messianic uh, uh, idea that somehow there'll be an intervention into history and that salvation will come from some sort of uh, you know, Kairos, uh, which will allow, uh, you know, a figure or, you know, something messianic to interrupt history. He doesn't buy into that. So he's very interested in theology, but I don't think he is himself explicitly a believer in any particular theology. So basically what you get in Bloomberg is a sense that there are some eras that are enormously uh, fecund or rich in dealing with perennial issues. Uh, the answers they give are complicated, serious, imaginative, uh, worth taking seriously, but always somehow inadequate. So it's not quite a cyclical view of history, but it is certainly a reoccupation argument. So that you get questions, uh, you get answers. Those answers are never quite satisfactory. You get a reoccupation. Maybe the next answer lasts a bit longer. Uh, but for example, the idea of myth being replaced, it won't be. That there is always going to be myth. There's always going to be language, which is rhetorical and metaphoric rather than, uh, let's say, scientific and uh, absolute. Now, this is not a failure. You know, it's not as if, well, we should then despair 
because we've created some extraordinary things through myth and metaphor and storytelling and anecdotes and God knows what else. I mean, it's very rich. And that's why we have to continue, we would argue, to work on myth. Uh, that's why we have to take metaphor seriously and see uh, that they've helped us in some way to make sense of the world. And therefore, it's a, a, I don't know, Sisyphusian is a negative way to put it, but it's a task which is not ever going to end with some sort of stasis. Uh, and I think that's, you know, I find that myself attractive. I find it realistic. I find it somehow true to my own experience of what, uh, you know, we as human beings try and often fail, but nonetheless occasionally in our limitations, nonetheless create. And, uh, you know, it's uh, in some ways, I think, uh, to that extent, worth taking seriously, not as a, I don't know what, he's not a charismatic leader, this is not going to create a doctrine that one can follow, but as something which at least intellectuals who can spend the time to make sense of his, of his writing will, you know, be, I think, uh, uh, inspired by. What influence do you think it's had on fields or scholars um, in general? And, and what, what do you what do you think is the main the main contribution that people take from it and that they integrate into their work? Well, there are substantive uh, answer, uh, substantive uh, issues, such as the issue of uh, whether or not reoccupation is better than transposition in terms of the secularization argument. Uh, the argument about trial of curiosity is fabulous. His Larger work on metaphorology has had an impact. People understand now metaphor and people, you know, a lot of people, Derrida, many people have written about metaphor, but Bloomberg is one of the great theorists of metaphor. And what's interesting is that it's an ology of metaphor. Let us say it's a logos, we might say, of metaphor. So it's a kind of uh, scientific or at least reflexive understanding of terminology that is rhetorical. So he's one of these figures who is at the, we might say, uh, crossroads of rhetoric and uh, scientific or uh, philosophical language. He's someone who understands the importance of pre-reflexivity, the world uh, which is before our ability to make it conceptually available. Um, uh, he's one of these people who makes respectable, once again, the dialogue between theology, philosophy, and science. So Bloomberg is, uh, you know, I would say a slow but steady influence. Uh, there are lots of uh, translations. There's a new anthology of his work that's come out. Books about him are beginning to appear in many different languages. So I would say um, Bloomberg is worth paying attention to. And although he'll never be as sexy as Derrida, Foucault, or Lacan, I mean, this is you know, a very, very dry German, uh, you know, philosophical style. There's, there's nothing spectacular about it. He's not a charismatic figure. But his prose and his argumentation, his range of reference, you know, you're really in the presence of somebody who uh, uh, earns your respect. And, you know, for at least some of us, that's, that's worth uh, the price of admission. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Farron Du. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.